Wemjeka. Hello, I am Samsara and you are listening to Emerald Hill Coffee Palace. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge this podcast is created in Australia across the lands of the Aboriginal people. We are honoured to be sharing our storytelling here. Emerald Hill Coffee Palace is a collection of creative writings and performances inspired by the history of the iconic Temperance Hall in Napier Street, South Melbourne. Along with the rise of the temperance movement in the late 19th century, Melbourne became host to an array of glorious coffee palaces, hotels which did not provide our alcoholic beverages. This podcast collection is a menu of coffee choices. Choose your favourite brew and sip away to the sounds of history. Have a laugh, have a cry, sing along and let your imagination fly. Today you have selected The Flat White. This verbatim docudrama looks at the temperance movement in Melbourne and how it affected the development of the city and its ideas through to today. This coffee is extra milky, coming in at an hour long, so you may want to partake of a meal while you sip away. We praise thee if one rescued soul while past the year prolonged its flight, turned shuddering from the poisonous bowl to health and liberty and light. We praise thee if one clouded home where broken hearts despairing pined, beheld the sire and husband come erect and in his perfect mind. No more weeping wife to mock till all her hopes in anguish end. No more trembling mind to shock and sink the father in the A long time ago in a land further south than had been travelled thus far. A distant country was taken over by a people hungry for everything. The Dutch came to Australia a long time earlier but recognised its inhabitants. When the English came, they invoked an obscure and seldom-wielded rule of law, terra nullius. What is this rule, I hear you ask? This doctrine of discovery is simple. Any land found which is not ruled by a European power cannot be claimed to be owned and is therefore open to claim. The United Kingdom was flooded with poverty, crime, orphans and second sons. Australia became the perfect place to dump its human refuse. Thus began a modern history of Australia. With the ships came disease and dysfunction. Amongst the pestilence, murder and violence lay the great hidden evil which would bring this innocent land and the original peoples within to their knees. Alcohol, the scourge of Europe, 
was to become the culture of Australia Fair. 1853. May it please your honourable council, we, the undersigned inhabitants of the colony of Victoria, viewing with feelings of regret and alarm the increasing amount of crime, devastation and domestic unhappiness induced by habits of intemperance, would earnestly memorialise your honourable house to devise the only remedy we can suggest for checking the evil. The number of drunkards, men and women, who are daily convicted at the mayor's court and the expense attendant thereon, the vast amount consumed in the ardent spirits by which the population generally and the misery which we, as a class, suffer by temptations of the public houses on our husbands, fathers, brothers or sons, lead us with earnestness to beseech your honourable house not to overlook the besetting of our rising colony. Here follow the signatures of 207 females. Eighteen hundred and thirty-eight. Wine, wine, they power and praise have ever been echoed in minstrel lays, but water I deem hath a mightier claim to fill up a niche in the temple of fame. Ye who are bred in Anacreon school may sneer at my strain as the song of a fool. Ye are wise, no doubt, but have yet to learn how the tongue can cleave and the vein. Liquor legislation had always been a lively area of the law and it was particularly the case during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Numerous temperance organisations, churches and social reformers waged tireless campaigns against alcohol consumption. Within a fireless, cheerless room, a lonely mourner weeps. Through the long night, mid cheerless gloom, her weary watch she keeps. Waiting in grief and shame and fear, her husband's well-known step to hear. An infant on her bosom lies, and in the wretched bed, a pining prattler restless cries, Oh, mother, give me bread. While she, the wretched, breathes a prayer for strength her nightly griefs to bear. Oh, woman's heart and woman's love must many trials know, but language has no words to prove the wife's keen bitter woe. When he who made her earthly bliss sinks in the drunkard's foul abyss. Temperance organisations appeared in Australia in the 1830s 
initially with the aim of moderating excessive alcohol consumption in society. By the turn of the century, they were campaigning for total abstinence from all alcoholic beverages. Eighteen hundred and fifty-three. We, the undersigned inhabitants of the colony of Victoria, having witnessed for some time with feelings of anxiety, regret and alarm the increased and increasing amount of immorality, crime, destitution and domestic wretchedness induced by habits of intemperance, do earnestly memorialise your honourable counsel to take a subject so important to the public weald into mature consideration at your earliest convenience. Beer on the wall, lady for bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, lady for bottles of beer on the wall. Lady for bottles of beer on the wall, lady for bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, lady for bottles of beer. Eighteen hundred and thirty-nine. Away, away, there's blood upon my brow. No, offer not the cup to me. I would not see its flow. Its dark and poisoned brim I'll flee. Its guilt I may not know. Thinkst thou, because in youth I'm sad, and bitter thoughts are mine, and life in sombre hue is clad, that I shall seek the wine? The Temperance League of Victoria was established in 1857. The rapid influx of gold seekers to Victoria dramatically increased beer and spirit and cocaine consumption. And drinking peaked with the economy. Lady two bottles of beer on the wall, lady two bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, lady two bottles of beer on the wall, lady two bottles of beer on the wall, lady two bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, lady two bottles of beer. Eighteen hundred and fifty-three. Humbly herewith, your petitioners have for a long time past witnessed the moral and social evils which attend the establishments of public houses wherever licensed, and that in no degree whatever do such establishments mitigate the mischief of the illicit manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors. Your petitioners can produce indubitable proof that the crime of the colony mainly originates in drunkenness and its associations. And they protest against the injustice of sober people being made to bear the burdens brought upon our society by such unnatural and unrighteous means to render groundless the reasons urged in favour of the licensing of public houses. Your petitioners beg of your honourable house to encourage the establishment of coffee houses and places of refreshment and so to take away all occasion for the licensed public houses as well as all inducement for the surreptitious sale of liquors, whether drowned or otherwise. Here follow 231 signatures. An Act of State Parliament in 1876 responded to the interests of both the temperance movement and the publicans who had organised a joint conference in 1874. The two groups had some major points of agreement with more restrictive legislation. The teetotalers helped to reduce drunkenness and the publicans were anxious to keep the liquor trade 
in as few hands as possible. Opportunities to buy alcohol were certainly already plentiful. A definition, sly grog shops. A sly grog shop or shanty is an Australian term for an unlicensed hotel, liquor store or other vendor, sometimes with the added suggestion of selling poor quality alcoholic beverages. The term is also used to denote illegal sales in indigenous communities where alcohol has been banned or restricted. The Australian slang term sly grog combines two older English slang terms. One, on the sly, meaning in a secret, clandestine or covert manner without publicity or openness. And two, grog, a naval term originally referring to a rum and water mixture. In the Australian context, grog was used to describe diluted, adulterated and substandard rum. In the early decades of the Australian colonies, Grog was often the only alcoholic beverage available to the working classes. An international temperance conference was held in Melbourne in 1880. The economic boom years of the 1880s saw the opening of temperance hotels or coffee palaces where travellers could stay without being tempted by alcohol, notably the Federal Hotel, the Victoria Hotel, the Grand Hotel, later to be known as the Windsor. 81 bottles of beer on the wall, 81 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 80 bottles of beer on the wall, 80 bottles of beer on the wall, 80 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 79 bottles of beer on the wall. Sly grog shops are positively the curse of the country, and to these dens of infamy and shame can many a single-hearted youth trace the ruin of his character and his initiation into every species of evil and immorality. At these places will be found congregated the known thieves and blackguards of a district. There they inveigle the unthinking, induce the habit of rum drinking, and at last lead them from one illegal act to another until the scholar becomes as proficient as the master in the practice of robbery and stealing the property of others. It is a question which bears strongly on our moral and social standing as people how the slight grog shops are to be extirpated, and surely it is a question which ought to be earnestly taken up in Parliament, which is as much bound to preserve the morals as the liberties of the people. Slight grog shops are worse than nuisances. They are gangrenes eating away at the morality and religion of the denizens. They are deadly fountains diffusing poison and death around the neighbourhoods where they are found. These wretched slight grog sellers are the pests of society. They are the secret underminers of its pillars. And if they are not shortly eradicated, our circuit courts will be the revelation of their accursed doings. Take one down, pass it around, 76 bottles of beer on the wall. 1800 
and 58. Humbly we show with your petitioner's view, with great alarm, that an attempt is now being made to open the public houses on Sunday. The present law has attempted to suppress drunkenness and its concomitant evils and to secure outward decorum on the Lord's Day. In the opinion of your petitioners, to open public houses on Sunday would be unjust inasmuch as other places of business are closed. It is inimical to good order inasmuch as our streets will become disgraced by scenes of dissipation and disorderliness. It is injurious to the rising youth of our colony inasmuch as they will thus have powerful temptations placed in the way at a time when, by reason of not being occupied by business, they are most easily led astray, and it is extremely impolite, inasmuch as wise legislation will devise measures for the maintenance of tranquility and order on that sacred day, instead of opening the floodgates of vice. Here follows 71 signatures. Women became heavily involved in the temperance issue. At first, by contributing to the women's committees of existing temperance groups, and later, through their own organisations, women were appearing in public because their fellow women were the greatest sufferers from the evils of strong drink. The speaker's anecdotes were more effective as they came from women's personal experiences of dealing with the miseries caused by overindulgence in alcohol. Margaret MacLean born 1845, died 1923. Margaret MacLean was a temperance advocate and a feminist. She migrated to Port Phillip in 1849. In 1887, she became a founding member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union of Victoria. The WCTU members had earlier perceived the need for political influence, and Mrs MacLean became one of the foremost advocates for votes for women. She was noted for her hospitality, whether as a hostess to temperance missionaries or as an organiser of drawing room meetings for recruitment. She saw clearly how the WCTU was itself an agent of women's emancipation, providing much needed esprit de corps, developing women's minds, faculties and gifts, and teaching them that they are citizens, that they have responsibilities as such, and ought to have privileges corresponding thereto. In 1902, she helped to found the National Council of Women of Victoria, which, with the WCTU, pressed for women's suffrage, juvenile courts, police matrons and other reforms. In retirement, she continued working for temperance and social reform. The WCTU, in addition to the temperance cause, aimed to campaign for the extermination of opium, the tobacco trades as well as gambling. In 1885, an act was passed prohibiting liquor trading after 11.30pm and introducing complex district licensing processes. In the following years, two government inquiries examined the negative aspect of alcohol and the trade itself, reviewed the treatment of habitual drunkards and the conduct of hotels. The findings of both Inquiries bolstered the temperance cause. Bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy-six bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Seventy-five bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy-five bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy-five bottles of beer. Take one down. Eighteen hundred and forty-five. The power is stirring. 
A broad light has shone amid the nations in the wilderness of the world's social horrors and distress. Heralding temperance is the Baptist John announced to the Christ. Amazed upon her throne, built up of skulls that were in life not less than temples of great souls, behold excess. Blinks in its rays and feels her empire gone. And ignorance and crime, each brutal vice that brands the bow that shames and steals the heart, are starting from their layers in human styes, like felons scared and gathered to depart. Even as the fiend gods of the pagan earth trooped well hard at the babe of Bethlehem's Take one down, pass it around. Seventy bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Seventy bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy one bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy one bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Seventy bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy bottles of beer in the wall. Seventy bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Sixty nine bottles of beer. Maria Kirk. Born 1855, died 1928. Maria Kirk was a temperance advocate and social reformer. In 1887, Mrs. Kirk played a large part in establishing the Women's Christian Temperance Union of Victoria. In 1888, she became General Secretary of the WCTU of Victoria. She also edited the WCTU Journal and later served for many years as President of the Union's Melbourne branch. Her wide-ranging activities included founding new branches of the union, managing its headquarters, raising funds, and running a club for working girls. During the 1890s, she also led the WCTU's successful defence of a higher age of consent for girls. Eighteen hundred and forty-six. Drink, friends, drink deep. The moon is high. Drink and forget your care. The sultry summer suns are nigh. Drink and your strength repair. The deer that from the hunter flies. The warrior red with slaughter. The camel neath the burning skies. Quaff the deep crystal water. Our father sound the example gives. Mother Earth also, he jocund drinks above the clouds, she blushing drinks below. Pledge high, pledge the friends you love long, to absent wife and daughter, or blooming maid who rules your heart. Drink deep, but only water. Sixty-seven bottles of beer in the walls, sixty-seven bottles of beer. Take one down. Well before shop trading hours were standardised in Victoria, the temperance movement had been calling for earlier closing hours for hotels. In 1901, a WCTU representative complained that the liquor trade was allowed to continue its business up to a late hour. Six o'clock became the general closing time for metropolitan shops in Melbourne in 1906. However, it was not until 1911 that the six o'clock hotel closing movement made a more concerted effort to press its case with the Victorian Parliament. 65 bottles of beer on the wall, 65 bottles of 
beer. Take one down, pass it around. 64 bottles of beer in the wall. 64 bottles of beer in the wall. 64 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 63 bottles of beer in the wall. Helen Hart, born 1842, died 1908. Helen Hart was a feminist preacher and lecturer. She spoke on a wide range of subjects, including public health, temperance, politics, and women's rights, in many city and suburban venues. In many areas, the first woman to speak publicly on the subject of women's rights, she was subjected to physical assault, practical jokes, such as having fireworks thrown at her, derision, and even sexual harassment. 63 bottles of beer on the wall! 62 bottles of beer! Take one down, pass it around! 62 bottles of beer on the wall! 62 bottles of beer on the wall, 62 bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around. In 1911, there was a change working towards standardising hotel and wind shop hours to match those of ordinary businesses. The Premier claimed there was no reason why hotels should be allowed to stay open after shops were closed and that a wave of public opinion was needed to sweep such evils away. Despite his support, there were no substantial changes made at the time. 61 bottles of beer on the wall, 61 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, 61 bottles of beer. Eighteen hundred and eighty. Regretted to observe on the last occasion this subject was before the House that certain honourable members appeared to confound local option with the total abstinence movement. The two things, however, are essentially different, and a strict line of demarcation should be drawn between them. There is nothing in the principle of local option to which total abstainers cannot agree, but I cannot shut my eyes to the fact that there are principles involved in the total abstinence movement to which certain advocates of local option might object. Total abstainers pledge themselves to abstain from and to discourage the use of all intoxicating liquors, but no such promise is exacted from those who support local option. The temperance movement, pure and simple, rests on the assumption that the community could dispense with the use of intoxicating liquors. That plain, simple food and pure cold water are of themselves sufficient to sustain the human system and to furnish all the strength necessary for the due performance of the duties of life. The sole object of local option, however, is to induce the legislature to grant to the people the power of saying authoritatively how many public houses they require. Some time ago, at Emerald Hill, the inhabitants of the neighbourhood petitioned the licensing bench against a licence being issued or transferred for a certain house close to the beach. They urged that the granting of the licence in question would not only depreciate the value of the property, but would also have a tendency to demoralise the neighbourhood, and the licensing bench refused to grant the licence. This shows that men who are not teetotalers deprecate the establishment of public houses in respectable neighbourhoods. 
men who are heads of families and who have other interests than brick and mortar to serve, which to preserve their children from being brought into contact with public house contamination. And the adoption of the principle of local option will furnish them with the power of doing so effectually. Let us next take the objection about interfering with the liberty of the subject. It appears to me that the only person whose liberty would be interfered with would be such as might be anxious to sell spirits to those who had no wish to buy them. I submit that immediately the majority of the inhabitants of any neighbourhood arrive at the conclusion that the issuing of licences for public houses will give rise to intemperance. From that moment they have a right to protest against the issue of licences and, if you deprive them of that right, you deprive them of the right to defend their own interests. I submit no matter what the trade or traffic may be, no matter though it may be hoary with the frost of years, if it has proved itself to be detrimental to the public interests, to have a tendency to shorten human life, to abridge human happiness, to demoralize the community, and to depreciate the value of property, it is the imperative duty of the legislature to devise means for regulating and suppressing that traffic. No community in the world spends so much in drink as the people of this country do. Not in proportion to the population. Mr. Speaker, the tendency of public feeling in this country is unquestionably in favour of reducing the number of hotels. Anyone who has travelled through the country must know that a large proportion of the public houses have no accommodation for travellers, and the proprietors don't pretend to board or lodge anybody, or to stable any man's horse. I repeat that there is no greater evil, no greater social calamity in the country than the increasing number of public houses, and that increase stares us in the face in every direction. And I am perfectly satisfied that it behoves all well-thinking men who are true lovers of their country to do everything they can to put down the lower class of public houses as something that ought to be utterly suppressed as soon as possible. Look at how the constitutions of men are injured. Families made to suffer and our charitable institutions crowded because of the traffic carried on in low dens. Shanties where the stuff sold is enough to poison a pig. limiting the number of public houses will diminish drunkenness or the miseries and crime that follow in its wake. What I fear is that a sensible decrease in public house accommodation will simply lead to the sale of intoxicants in sly grog shops and, consequently, to all the abuses belonging to such a system.
when we have intoxicants habitually sold in houses outside police supervision or protection and without any check upon the quality of the liquor dispensed, what may we expect? A state of things indefinitely more detrimental to the community than our present hotel system? Hmm? Further, I deny that the abolition of public houses tomorrow would make the community sober because those who desire intoxicants would get them at sly grog shops. I deny that the jails and the asylums are overburdened with inebriates. Teetotalers are represented in those establishments as well as drinkers. Moreover, as hotels are intended for the accommodation of the public generally, it is not alone the residents of any particular district who have to be considered. I suppose the object in view in such a motion as this is to increase the sobriety of the community, but I very much doubt whether, if all the public houses in Melbourne were closed tomorrow, drunkenness would cease. Fewer men might be seen in a state of drunkenness about the streets, but I am afraid the outcome would be to establish a very large number of sly grog shops and houses of even worse repute. I remember that when it was contrary to the law, that spirits would be retailed or sold on the gold diggings, there was no great difficulty in obtaining them in shanties or sly grog shops. No man who takes the slightest thought for the welfare of his fellow creatures can fail to see that the diminution of the sale of intoxicating liquors would have a beneficial effect upon the community, and that it is desirable to adopt any legislation which will accomplish that result by fair and just means. If it will do no good, it will certainly have no evil effect, and on that ground alone, I shall certainly feel justified in voting for the motion. Uh, and his... bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 48 bottles of beer on the wall. 48 bottles of beer on the wall. 48 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 47 bottles of beer on the wall. 47 bottles of beer on the wall. 47 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 46 bottles of beer on the wall. 45 bottles of beer on the wall. 45 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 44 bottles of beer. 1800 and 99 it is well recognized that habitual drunkenness leads to insanity the habitual drunkard unless remedial measures be taken on his behalf will ultimately find his way to an asylum for the insane or to the jail leaving his family in many cases totally unprovided for and becoming himself a helpless individual and in all probability thrown upon the public for support if therefore there exists a means of reclaiming him and making him a responsible person or of checking his downward career the experiment is well worth the trial the benefit resulting to himself 
and to those dependent on him would be incalculable. And at the same time, the state would be the gainer. While it is beyond question that a majority of those who commit minor offences are of drunken habits, it is certain that the most notorious criminals are not drunkards, for the successful perpetration of serious crimes necessitates sobriety. The only means by which drunkards are now dealt with are a few private hospitals or institutions to which people of the, you know, well-to-do class voluntarily go for treatment. And the jail, to which persons are committed by the magistrates, not for treatment such as drunkards require, but as offenders against criminal law. The practice of sending a habitual drunkard to jail for short terms of imprisonment, or fining him in small amounts, instead of placing him under curative influences and discipline suited to his condition, is inefficious. The courts and prisons have become familiar with miserable beings punished scores of times for offences due to an uncontrollable passion. There are, generally speaking, three classes of habitual drunkards in the community. Firstly, those moving in the middle and high classes of a society who drink habitually to excess, becoming a burden on their families and a nuisance to the neighbourhood in which they live. Secondly, those who possess an uncontrollable desire for liquor and are sent to jail for drunkenness but are not of the criminal class. And finally, those regarded as criminal inebriates who are dealt with as such. The good results to be obtained from any system of treatment of habitual drunkards will naturally be limited unless preventative measures are taken to minimise the causes of drunkenness. It is quite a common thing in some localities more so than others to see children of tender years carrying liquor from a public house to their parents' homes. The existence and tolerance of such practice degrades our community. In the experience of medical men, the excessive use of drugs such as morphine and opium is also carried on to a large extent. And we recommend that in any proposed legislation on the subject, inebriates should be read to include persons who habitually use such drugs to excess. Take one down, pass it around, 41 bottles of beer on the wall. 41 bottles of beer on the wall. 41 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, 40 bottles of beer on the wall. 40 bottles of beer on the wall. 40 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, 39 bottles of beer on the wall. In 1910, Melbourne was a city with a powerful thirst, with one bar for every 120 people. Alcohol was one of the city's most popular and lucrative hobbies. Alcohol was cheap, readily available, and heavy drinking, an accepted part of life. It was claimed by some that this level of drinking had led to increased property crime and domestic violence. During World War One, the temperance movement would reach the height of its influence. Thirty-nine bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-nine bottles of beer. Take one down. Pass it around. Thirty-seven bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-seven bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-seven bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around. Thirty-six bottles of beer on the wall. Nineteen hundred and three. Yeah, Borden. 
I'm awfully surprised to find myself sober. And being sober, I will take up my pen to write a few lines, hoping they will find you as I am at present. I want to know a few things. In the first place, why does a man get drunk? There seems to be no excuse for it. I get drunk because I am in trouble, and I get drunk because I've got out of it. I get drunk because I'm sick, or have corns, or the toothache, and I get drunk because I'm feeling well and grand. I get drunk because I was rejected, and I get awfully drunk the night I was accepted. And mind you, I don't like to get drunk at all, because I don't enjoy it very much and suffer hell afterwards. I'm always far better and happier when I'm sober, and tea always tastes better than beer. But I get drunk. I get drunk when I feel I want to drink, and I get drunk when I don't. I get drunk because I had a row last night and made a fool of myself and it worries me. And when things are fixed up, I get drunk to celebrate it. And mind you, I've got no craving for the drink. I get drunk because I'm frightened about things and because I don't care a damn. Because I'm hard up and because I'm flush. And somehow, I seem to have better luck when I'm drunk. I don't think the mystery of drunkenness will ever be explained until all things are explained and that'll be never. A friend says that we don't drink to feel happier, but to feel less miserable. But I don't feel miserable when I'm straight. Perhaps I'm not perfectly sober right now after all. I'll go and get a drink and write again later. Henry Lawson. As Australia sent soldiers off to Europe to fight and die, a mood of austerity gripped the nation. On the home front, public drunkenness was viewed more than ever as improper and consuming alcohol as an indulgence. Australia's troops were prohibited from drinking on duty and many people back home saw it as proper to observe the same restrictions. The temperance movement seized their opportunity. They demanded opening times be reduced to 6pm, allowing only one hour of drinking time at the end of the work day. Large demonstrations in support of this change were held across Australia and petitions with thousands of names collected. The campaign was successful enough that several state governments agreed to hold a referendum. Six bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-six bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Thirty-four bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-four bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty-four bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Thirty-two bottles of beer on the wall. Eighteen hundred and seventy-three. What? Rob a poor man of his beer? And give him good victuals instead? Your heart's very hard, sir, I fear. Do you think we can live upon bread? What? Rob a poor man of his mug, and give him a house of his own, with kitchen and parlour so smug, tis enough to draw tear from a stone. What? Rob a poor man of his glass, and teach him to read and to write. What save him from being an ass? Tis nothing but teetotal spite. What? Rob a poor man of his ale and prevent him from beating his wife, from being locked up in jail with penal employment for life. At the end of 1916, voters in Victoria approved the change. The temperance movement appeared to have won a decisive victory. But as the dour mood of the war years gave back to the roaring 20s, alcohol came roaring back, with legal drinking hours now severely restricted illicit cafes and bars, also known as speakeasies, began to operate after 6pm and found plenty of customers willing to break the law. 
but with after-hours booze prohibitively expensive for many. The rest of the adult population had to try and make do with the one hour of drinking time they had available to them. Should be approaching the bar, dead on 5.30. Each of us would buy five beers, six o'clock. The publican will ring his bell and yell, go on, fellas, drink up. And then we were all out in the footpath. Everyone was drunk at 6.15pm. People were chundering. Bodies that had not known food for five hours had to have a tough constitution to handle five beers in 30 minutes. Soon the six o'clock swill was on full swing. It was a long time before I learned to handle it. First arrivals crowded the counter. Less fortunate ones shouted over their ads. The shouting for service, the crash of falling glasses, the grunting and shoving crowd, the smell of human bodies, the smell of liquor, all beat against me brain until my actions became mechanised. It was not a pretty sight. Despite the gross successes of six o'clock closing and its unpopularity, the policy remained entrenched. Opponents claimed this gave Melbourne a provincial or even unwelcoming tone. But anti-drinking advocates were well organised and continued to lobby against any changes to the law. The tussle over when and how people were allowed to drink dragged on for decades. Cecilia Downing, born 1858, died 1952. Cecilia Downing was a temperance worker, community activist and political organiser. Despite the demands of her seven children, Cecilia involved herself in church, temperance and philanthropic work. A founding member of the Kinnerton branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, she became Victorian President and Founding Superintendent of the WCTU's Immigration Department. Until 1915, Cecilia devoted her energies to the battle against drink. Under her leadership, the WCTU's Victorian branch expanded more rapidly than any other and galvanised nearly all women's organisations in the state to demand dry canteens in military camps and the early closing of hotels. Six o'clock closing was finally repealed in 1966. From this date, bars in Melbourne were permitted to remain open till 10pm. When it finally came, the change was not as dramatic as many had predicted. The temperance people said that instead of a six o'clock swill, there'd be a ten o'clock swill. Nah, husbands would be home to their wives and there'd be carnage on the roads. Well, nothing happened. Pubs are practically empty. Drinking isn't very interesting when it's legal. Disgusting. That's what they are, disgusting. Shouting, yelling, screaming, bawling. Over here, love. Over here, darling. As if their lives depended on it. When the doors open and they rush the bar and a mob, I swear I want to turn and run. From men in shirt sleeves, men in suits, makes no difference. Once they're there, nothing makes them move, not in fit. A grenade would go off, an earthquake, an air raid. It wouldn't shift him. Once a fellow was so determined not to give up his place at the bar, he just pissed right there where he stood. Bottles of beer on the wall. Thirty bottles of beer on the wall. 
2016. I lost my life to the drink. Everything I cared about began to sink. And the more I start to think, it tempts me to pick up another drink. It costs the ones I love most dear, because I didn't want to hear from the ones who cared. I guess deep down I was scared of this addiction I had read. I wish I knew the real cost of the things that were lost. My loving family who were always there, but now they can only stare. 29 bottles of beer on the wall. 29 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 28 bottles of beer on the wall. 28 bottles of beer on the wall. 28 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 27 bottles of beer. There were a number of reasons for the change of heart. Mass migration in the 1950s saw working class suburbs take on a noticeable European flavour. Espresso bars became all the rage, and the young and smart started looking for alternatives for eating and drinking beyond the fairly rigid pub restaurant dichotomy that the law prescribed. Some coffee bars gained extra allure with the poorly kept secret that they might illegally serve their customers red wine. For many Melburnians at the time, drinking wine in a cafe seemed like an impossibly glamorous thing to do. Bottles of beer on the wall. 27 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 26 bottles of beer on the wall. 26 bottles of beer on the wall. 26 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 25 bottles of beer on the wall. Delia Russell, born 1870, died 1938. Delia Russell was a community worker born at Emerald Hill. In 1929, she argued that it was of no use talking about the poor or the want of employment unless we get down to practical matters and try to make it possible for them to live better on a smaller wage. Initially very successful, she ran foul of the executive of the Housewives Association of Victoria. The following year, they publicly repudiated her over her support for temperance by education rather than prohibition and constitutional issues. 25 bottles of beer on the wall. 25 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 24 bottles of beer on the wall. 24 bottles of beer on the wall. 24 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. 23 bottles of beer. Another influence was the thousands of overseas sporting folk and visitors who descended on the city for the 1956 Olympic Games. For the first time, locals were able to see themselves and their city from the point of view of an influx of outsiders, a situation that saw such practices as the swill being placed in a thoroughly unflattering light. Twenty-three bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Twenty-two bottles of beer on the wall. Twenty-two bottles of beer on the wall. Twenty-two bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Twenty-one bottles of beer. Nineteen hundred. My parents were sober living and often did pray for their family to abstain from intoxicating drink always because they knew it would lead them astray, which no God-fearing man would dare to gainsay. Some people do say that God made strong drink, 
But he is not so cruel, I think, to lay a stumbling block in his children's way and then punish them to going. Bottles of beer on the wall. Twenty bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around. Nineteen bottles of beer on the wall. Another influence was the thousands of overseas sporting folk and visitors who descended on the city for the 1956 Olympic Games. For the first time, locals were able to see themselves and their city from the point of view of an influx of outsiders, a situation that saw such practices as the swill being placed in a thoroughly unflattering light. Perhaps the most significant influence on the changing attitudes, though, was the growing post-war influence. More money was available and more people were travelling overseas. People were suddenly wondering why they couldn't have that kind of life in Melbourne. By the 1980s, this frustration reached breaking point. It was a system that had also entrenched the monopoly of the hotels as pretty much the only places in the state where you could have a drink without being legally obliged to partake of substantial refreshments. Eighteen bottles of beer on the wall. Eighteen bottles of beer. Take one down. Pass it around. Seventeen bottles of beer on the wall. 2013. The rivers of Grog are deep and wide. They keep the nation well supplied. Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney town. The rivers of Grog throw quietly down. By the 1980s, this frustration reached breaking point. It was a system that had also entrenched the monopoly of the hotels as pretty much the only places in the state where you could have a drink without being legally obliged to partake of substantial refreshments. 2020. Shutting outlets will affect the whole supply chain of an industry that generated $42 billion for the economy. It will be devastating for the farmers producing hops and wheat for beer or grapes for the wine sector, through to those who do the packaging, bottling and logistics, right through to consumers. Every part of the supply chain in Australia needs to remain open or the economic costs will be high. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs that may not come back again. Alcohol is an essential service in Australia, not just because it provides jobs, but because it is part of the culture. It's a way of life for many Australians, and in moderation it's good for your health. Bans in other countries are being modified to allow alcohol sales, partly because it will make it easier for people to self-isolate. If we want people to stay at home, if we want them in good state of mental health with a conviviality that encourages them to adhere to social isolation, we've got to ensure they have access to the social norms such as enjoying a drink. 2020 has seen drought, fire, smoke and now COVID-19 place unprecedented pressure on the profitability of Australian grape and wine businesses. Many businesses are currently looking at how they can retain their staff, pay suppliers and stay afloat. If you cast an eye over Victoria's hospitality scene today, the one with small bars tucked into every conceivable nook and cranny, 
with businesses such as hairdressers, bookstores and nurseries able to legally sell alcohol with restaurants that operate like bars and wineries with cellar doors, etc. It can be hard to remember just how different the landscape was, even in the mid-1980s. Mr Menzies takes me by the hand, glancing at the clocks of Flinders Street Station. It's ten to six. He eyes the display of hats at the corner, picturing himself in dove grey cobra, but shakes his head. We cross, stand outside the door of Young and Jackson's, unseen by the working men who reel from every door to leave their pile of steam and sick, wretched into the gutter, spit and stagger, and then barge away back in. Through blasts of beer fumes, and drink is pressing forward. Elbow fight him back to the bar. Eleven bottles of beer on the wall! Eleven bottles of beer! Take one down! Pass it around! Ten bottles of beer on the wall! Ten bottles of beer on the wall! Ten bottles of beer! Take one down! Despite the lessons of the past, a prohibition-based approach to containing the consumption of alcohol has come back into fashion. Examples include the 2am lockout trials and the increased surveillance of licensed premises. Two thousand and twenty. Our country has a long and very troubled relationship with alcohol and COVID-19 isolation has the potential to bring out the worst of our national battle with the bottle. As in many countries, alcohol is undeniably entwined in our social DNA. It, it helps us celebrate, commiserate, unwind and socialise. Our alcohol consumption has varied much more dramatically than is the popular myth. From very high levels in the 1830s to very low levels in the temperance era of the Great Depression, followed by the major post-World War II upswing to a peak in the mid-1970s. COVID-19 and the other social distancing measures present yet another pivot in our national relationship with booze. For many, it is impossible to fathom our society in its absence. Despite this, the darker side of alcohol use and misuse is something we are well acquainted with. We know all too well that heavy alcohol consumption leads to chronic physical and mental illnesses, fuels interpersonal violence and reduces workplace productivity. Our society has altered in the broadest and most profound way since World War II. Australians have had to self-isolate and radically change our way of life. It's important to reflect on how and why this may affect our national intake and its ramifications for our nation. While anxiety and stress associated with it is to be expected, managing these reactions can be extremely challenging. 
The impact of stress, anxiety and mass trauma on alcohol consumption has been well studied. The Alcohol and Drug Foundation says experiences of mass trauma like terrorism, mass shootings, natural disasters, economic crises, increased alcohol use and abuse. On an individual level, personal stresses like financial stress, death of a loved one or relationship strains similarly drive increased alcohol consumption, with 40% of Australians saying they use alcohol as a coping mechanism for stress. This is particularly problematic for individuals facing domestic violence, strained relationships. Furthermore, many people report suffering from loneliness, social isolation and boredom. What's worse is that our normal routines, outlets and ways of coping with stress have been inextricably altered. How have these radical societal changes affected our drinking patterns? A recent poll found some alarming results. It found that 20% of households reported buying more alcohol than usual since the COVID-19 outbreak. 70% of Australians, 70% we're drinking more than usual since the outbreak and people are drinking more alcohol than they planned or even thought they had. More often, earlier in the day, and on 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 Today, Australia has a well-documented culture of alcohol abuse and remains among the most well-lubricated countries in the Western world. In the end, the regulations did exactly the opposite of what they had intended, with consequences that stretch well beyond last call. No more bottles of beer. No more bottles of beer. Go to the store. Buy some more. 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Spill was written by Samsara and performed by Daniel Brescher, Josh Hayes, Scott Knight, Maurice Shefford, Damien Valletta and Samsara. The podcast theme music is by Embryo. We use free sound for effects and would like to acknowledge Cuckoo Clock Breaking Down by Inspector J and Angel 2 Mix by Piku 20303 Six O'Clock Spill is a collage verbatim work based on excerpts from Australian Dictionary of Biography, Australian Temperance Magazine, Belunt Poets, Caddy, Growing Up with Mr Menzies, Health Hub, Museum of Lost Things, Parliamentary Library and Information Service, Union Handbills and Van Diemen's Land Temperance Herald. Emerald Hill Coffee Palace is available free on all good podcatchers. The Emerald Hill Coffee Palace project is supported by City of Port Phillip and Arts Access Victoria Thrive Creative Grants for Deaf and Disabled Artists. There are five other coffees to enjoy during your next coffee break. If you want a bit of a laugh, I recommend the frappe or the mocha. If you're in a more serious kind of mood, you could order the espresso. And if you're looking for something for the kids, try our babuccino. Are you feeling lyrical? Then why not have a cappuccino? Your next order is ready to be served.